Welcome to CPP Chat, an N weekly look at what's going on in the world of C++, chatting with guests from the community. But before what goes around comes around, John has a disclaimer to read. Thank you, Phil. This is a disclaimer. These techniques and methodologies are not intended to substitute for or override the service and advice from your medical doctor, licensed health professional, or other professional advisors. No guarantee of results is implied, as individual results may vary. Phil Nash, John Kalb, and the guests of the podcast, as well as CPP Chat, make no claim or obligation and take no legal responsibility for the effectiveness, results, or benefits of using the methods described. The contents of the CPP Chat website, including all written information and materials such as text, graphics, images, and audio, and video content, are for general information purposes only, are not intended, nor should be relied upon for any medical advice. I'm glad we got that covered. Yes. Uh, have you ever thought... If I were writing the compiler, I could do better. Well, Sean Baxter, who is our guest today, has decided to test this out. Sean has created his own C++ compiler. He's done it his way. Uh, welcome, Sean. Uh, uh, thank you for having me. Um, Good to be here. Before we dive into your compiler, I guess we'll circle back to that one. Um, let's take a look at uh, what's going on in the news, uh, specifically... Uh, we want to do a little bit of recap on conferences. The conference that uh, has just ended, CPP Con, we just put up a, an announcement yesterday for a link, a link to the videos and to slides and also some trip reports. It's uh, the, the videos are not all completely up yet. I think it's been about, uh, we're about halfway there, I think, more or less. Um, if we get everything done at the pace they're on now, we will have everything up within three weeks of the conference. But legally, we are, I should say legally, but by contract, the um, Bash Films is responsible to get everything up in a month. So if they can't keep this pace up, that's okay. They've got a week to slide. But otherwise, lots of videos are going up, lots of good comments, lots of response to them. So how many videos are there? Um, or how many talks were there? There's going to be on the order of 160. Uh, I don't know exactly how many lightning talks there are, but um, pretty impressive. Pace. But there were uh, about over 150 actual Superbus talks, and then there's things like um, uh, fireside chat and a few other things that get recorded, um, and then and then all the lightning talks. And you're in a better position than me to say how many lightning talks there were. How many lightning talks were there? I'm just trying to get the math in my head. <laughs> Definitely over 100, maybe like 130 or something like 130 that. 130 lightning talks? Something like that. Sounds right. Wow. Yeah, maybe I'm wrong there. But. Yeah, that seems like um, that seems like you couldn't do that many five-minute talks in the time we had. But maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah. Um, anyway. We did quite a few. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the things that I guess has sparked a few comments is our policy on comments. Um we have kind of had a poor response to comments on YouTube because YouTube comments tend to be so swampy. Um, and so we were kind of responding only when people complained and, you know, went out and did them because we didn't really have enough volunteers to do proper con uh, comment moderation. So we actually had um, a number of requests and I thought about it and I acceded to these requests, which was let's just turn content, turn all comments off on everything because it's just probably easier to handle but we got a lot of pushback on that and finally we've got some people who volunteered so um to moderate comments 
So if you're interested in moderating comments on YouTube, we'd love to have a few more people because that's what makes it possible because our policy now is that no comment will go out unless it's been approved by a human moderator. And that is someone who understands uh, C++. And um, so that's so that's our new policy. And I, so far, it's been okay. But it would be great if we had a few more moderators who are willing to spend. It really is just a few minutes a week if we get enough moderators. Um, and, you know, I'm looking at right now is when I assume most of the comments will happen. Right after uh, talks go up is when you're going to get a lot of comments. And we haven't really had problems staying on top of it so far. So... Um, the few people helping, a few more people helping, it shouldn't be a problem. That's, that's really excellent news. I'm glad you're doing this. Well, as I said, uh, you know, the, the, um, a, you know, the, the, the potential evilness of comments is pretty potentially evil. And so we don't really, you know, the, the positive benefit that we would get. And I should say, when we turned comments off, what we did was we redirected people. We told people, go to the, CPP Reddit, because that's moderated. Um, and that's got moderation in place. And if people make comments that are inappropriate there, the moderators there will encourage them to do better. Um, and that's still possible. You can still, you know, make a link from Reddit to the video and make whatever comments you want. And in fact, we have a moderation policy for the for the YouTube comments that is very, very technical. We even things that might be okay things, we will kill them. So if your comment is, hey, that's a good-looking shirt that person's wearing, that is not going to survive uh, our moderation. We're just interested in technical comments. Um, they have a different policy, I think, on Reddit. If you said something like that on Reddit, I think they'd let that go because they don't consider that offensive. But our our standard is not what's offensive. Our standard is what is not technical plus what is offensive. <laughs> if you say something like, wow, that's interesting as shit, that's probably not going to make moderation either. That's going to get killed just because of the language. Because we're saying, no, it's technical, it's professional, that's what we're looking for. And if it's not that, it's gone. Um, pretty ruthless, actually. Um, so if you want to make more interesting comments than that, uh, go over to Reddit and and deal with STL and Bryce and what they want to do to you. <laughs> And now I'm going to have to adjust the, the rating for the podcast. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so um, what else is going on? Do you have uh, updates for us on uh, C++ on C? Are there other conferences? So C++ on C, the super early bird tickets that, uh, that we opened a little while ago, they, they've almost sold out. Uh-huh. So if you want the, the cheapest possible tickets, now's the time to get them. I think there's two or three left. Okay. Uh, there's a few of the standard early bird tickets going as well and it's a little bit confusing i didn't really think this through to begin with but um i, I was asking people who are being uh, sponsored by their companies to hold off going for the super early bird to leave them for people that are paying for themselves but then we had people who were being paid for by the company actually wanted to buy tickets already so but well, why not open the early bird as well but now we've got this slightly confusing two streams going <laughs> um it seems to be okay but um but i'll have to rethink that for next year I yeah think. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, call for speakers is not call for speakers is not opened yet, but uh, that that should be soon. Um, we skipped over meeting C which I think is sold out. I talked to Jens about this. Um, congratulated him on selling out. Mm. He said um, he said kind of what I know from having run a sold out conference. That on the one hand it's great to be sold out. On the other hand, it's a real pain because you have all these people saying, "But but but can't I go?" And um, it's like 
uh, no, we're sold out. That's what sold out means. No, you can't go. We'd like to have you here, but you can't go. Um, Last I heard, he was waiting to hear from the venue whether they could get a few more slots open. I don't know if that's um, outdated news right. now or whether that's happening. So uh, it's worth checking back if um, if you haven't got tickets yet. Absolutely is. He he has, he is trying to find some solutions because, um, you know, if somebody wants to be at your conference, you want them there. So he's he's trying to fo- solve it, but but um, some of it's beyond his control. So um, so that's uh, so that's the news from that front. Um, I don't know if there are other other things we want to talk about, or are we ready to start talking about uh, Sean's creation? I, I think we should go for it. All right. So in case you didn't catch it from my terrible pun earlier, it's called Circle. And um, so tell us what Circle is. So um, what I thought about doing was taking a C++ programming language and rotating it from the runtime onto the compile time axis. So uh, there's it's there's like 50 new reserve words, but it's really one extension. So um, you just put the meta token in front of most kinds of statements, and it'll do that thing at compile time. So if you have meta in front of an expression statement, it'll evaluate the expression at compile time. So you can do meta printf hello, and you'll get a hello as you build. Or uh, meta in front of an object declaration, you'll get a an object that has storage duration of the whatever the, the, the curly braces in the parser. So by the time... Um, you know the the parser completes with that block. The object's destroyed, and then at runtime, there's nothing nothing left there. Um, the, the kind of leverage this gives you is using compile time control flow for the purposes of code generation. So you can have uh, you know metaphor loops, metaphors inside of class and enum definitions, and deposit members and enumerators there. Uh, you can uh, they, there's an interpreter so that you can run any function at compile time. So every class and function in the STL is available. Um, the interpreter supports almost anything except for like inline assembler, um, including foreign function calls, which you ultimately need to to um, to access the STL. So um, you can do things like open files uh, at compile time, um, scrape directories, open all the files, and then emit code from those things. Um, all these new keywords are about um, exposing functionality that's available at compile time that's not available at runtime. And that's why they weren't built into C or C++ or really any other language, because those languages are just intended to be um, executed at, at runtime where you don't have um, type information. Um, unless you're, you know, like Java or C Sharp that have that, you know, carry along um, runtime type information, but but C plus plus doesn't do that to any considerable degree. Okay, so so I got a bunch of questions now. Yeah, already you've got a bunch of questions. Um, so so just just to give somebody an idea, I'm not saying this is a good thing, but but you could actually like, I'm creating a structure. And I want the data members of the structure. I'm actually going to read a file and read in a list of data members. And and then make a structure because that's what you're talking about. This kind of metaphor loop. Yeah, sure. I'm gonna I'm gonna read in things from the file and use that to populate the data members of this uh, of this structure that I've I've created. That's the kind of thing that you can do. That's the kind of thing you can do. So um, you know, for decades, programmers have tried to practice separation of data from code, so that unless you're you know. Um, making a 1980s video game, you're not encoding bitmaps or JPEGs directly into your source code. You have those in their own file and they're, they're on disk. Um, and I think we can go further. We can separate code from logic, 
where logic is the value of your application. It's like the, the business value. Um, and the code is the kind of C++ glue that, um, that renders that, that takes that logical asset and, and turns it into something that can be executed on the, on the processor. And, and I think there's a, a, it's easier to practice this kind of code and logic separation in a scripting language because, um, Scripting languages are often, you know, dynamically typed. So there's a, a dictionary of members, and you can certainly use data or this this on-disk resource to to drive the generation of your of your um, of your program. And I thought what was interesting, having built Circle, is that you don't actually need a dynamically typed language to get a really flexible type system. So you can use static typing and still, you know, generate the members and and all the type information from disk or programmatically or however you want. Once the you know that closing curly brace is hit, you kind of seal the type. And and there it's it's uh, an immutable uh, type. But but while you're defining it, you can do whatever you want. Okay. So now I've got some more questions. And these are just based on the idea that and I, I looked I looked at the code and and uh, so that people understand you when you said this meta, you just say amp, at sign meta you put that at the beginning of a statement, and what you're saying is this statement parsed and 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 just like any other C++ statement, but it's done at compile time. It's done when the when the compiler reads this, it executes it immediately instead of just creating AST to generate code to execute at runtime. Did I get that right? Uh, yeah. I mean, there's the obvious caveat of what happens in a dependent context. So if you're in a class template definition or a function template definition, right. you're going to execute that thing while it's instantiated. But right. sure. Otherwise, if it's in a non-dependent context, um, it'll do whatever you want immediately. Right. And yeah. 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 So, so, so the questions were, and I, I assume it just the obvious answers, but I'm just trying to feel this out. If I, if I'm writing my meta, and I refer to something that is not in a meta statement, like I've created some object in, in you know, I've, I've entered a function, I create an object on the stack, and then I do a meta, and I try to operate on that object. Well, that isn't there yet, correct? I mean, that's, I've actually kind of got two languages going on at the same time, in a sense, in that I've got the code that we're generating that we're going to run at runtime, and then I have meta statements that are that are executed at compile time. And, and we can't mix those, right? Right. So, right. You can access those things in like an unevaluated context. So you can take size of or decal type of some real object from a meta context mm -hmm. because that just cares about the type information. That's fine. Because it's still in scope. You can't X. The, the compiler still knows what it is. It's in, yeah, they, they share the same declarative region, right? Yeah. Um, right, you can't access the values. The The flow of information goes from compile time to runtime. So you can create a meta object and then reference that from, like, real code. Mm -hmm. And you need to do that because if you have a compile time loop, the, 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 the step index, I, is compile time known. It's a meta object. But you still need to be able to access that at runtime. Mm -hmm. So the, the information flow really goes from compile time to runtime. But now the kind of the circle extensions give you a lot more flexibility in, in, in doing that. We already had that in a few places in C++. I mean, there are like, you know, const expert contexts, like, you know, where you, well, no, I'm, I'm going too far. Please continue. <laughs> well, I, I think that is one of the things that people are talking about for the future, where they want to be able to do things that at first I thought, well, that doesn't even make sense. They want to be able to at con have a const expert function that opens a file. And I say, well, it's just crazy. How do you know what, what files are going to be there at compile time? But what they're saying is, I would like to be able to open a file on the developer machine, read in information that I want to generate code, 
And that's what they're talking about, which is kind of what you're talking about is the ability to at compile time, open a file, get information from that and generate code based on that. People are looking at that a little bit differently, but trying to do that with reflection with const expert. So it's definitely the path that we're one way or another, we're going to figure this out, right? I don't know. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You figured it out already. Sure. And I I think I I didn't really extend C++. I extended C, really, or I extended the the er imperative language. And and these transformations could have been done at any point in the last 30 years. Um, You know, we could have had a 1980C compiler that that gave us all these. I mean, it's a little more difficult because the hardware resources were, were limited back then. But it's not like we need to achieve C plus plus twenty three technology where we're going to have um, you know next gen const expert to do any of this. Like we don't need te- you don't need templates to use these things. You don't need special syntax for the reflection. Uh, the idea is just like you have to buy into the idea that what's meaningful at runtime has a meaningful corollary at compile compile time. So, I mean, if you, if you, if you want to share my screen, I have like an example which is exactly what you just described, which is. Um, Okay, great. So this is a VM I'm running inside my Linux thing because of the, the streaming, but I think it'll work. So I have a file here. It's um, series.txt. And so this is just an on-disk file with some numbers. And imagine that these are like Taylor series coefficients. And I want to generate a function that opens up this file and evaluates a Taylor series where these are the, the coefficients on every term. So normal C program, and this will compile with Clang or GCC. So I have a, a, an ordinary function that opens a file by file name um, using fstreams, and it um, has a, a loop, and so it reads every double value out into a vector, and then it returns the vector. So this is ordinary code. And then I have the, the um, evaluation function. So I'm going to open this file, series.txt, and uh, initialize x, which is like x to the 0, x to the first, et cetera, and uh, loop through, arrange base 4, loop through all of the uh, coefficients and accumulate a value. So the, the user passes in some initial value of x, and then we go through and accumulate. So this is like ordinary C, uh, C code or C++ code. Now, the question is, is there a meaningful place to put in compile time evaluation? And certainly there is. Because I have, I know what these constants are at compile time, I can put meta in front of the object declaration for this vector that holds the coefficients. And so now, this object is initialized at compile time, and its initializer is evaluated at compile time. And this read file calls the function read file, and this is pushed to the interpreter. So it, it opens the file by file name. If it's not open, it throws an exception. Otherwise, it, you know, it, it reads through the whole file and it returns a vector of, of doubles. And the other thing I want to do is do a compile time loop. So I want to have this range base 4 execute at compile time. So I've put in two tokens, and now I have a um, I've built a function that's going to open this file, strip out its values, and then do an unrolled loop and expose all these op- optimization opportunities to the compiler backend, which is LLVM. So I'm going to get out LLVM code that just has these hard-coded values in, and this is no longer a runtime dependency, right? So if I um, if I build it and I evaluate it and pass it an initial, you know, a value of 0.5 or something, I get a value out. And so let's see what the actual code generate is. So I can emit LLVM to the console. And oops, sorry here. It's very good to make this function inline. So I don't want to emit that. That function is not going to be ODR used otherwise. OK, here we go. So the function I've generated, right? my function here, it's mangled. And we see all the values are hard-coded into the, into the function now. 
right? And so it just doesn't require you to learn anything. And suddenly we've got a whole new dimension um, of, of programming to play with, which is the compile time dimension. And I, I think a, a more fun example is to consider anything on your system, anything in the host environment as a library. So um, pretty much everyone uses Git or some you know version control system. And uh, a nice thing to do is to mark, is to like, um, if you have an about box or a dash dash version option to include a hash of the source tree that you used to build the code inside your, your, your version so that when there's a bug report, someone can say, oh, it's like, this is the hash. And then you know immediately the version you're talking about. So the, the way to get that is get rev parse head. It's cryptic, but it gives you a 40 digit hash. And so the question is, can we do this at compile time? I thought about having to do this with CMake, and I even looked on Stack Overflow, and I really had no idea on how to launch a, sh a shell command and turn it into a string literal. It's it's pretty it's pretty hard to do, but it should be something easy to do in C++. So I wrote a function called capture call. You pass it a shell command, right? It calls the POSIX API popen, and popen will capture well. It'll run the shell command and capture the terminal output into a file, and then I can just sit on the file, fread it into a vector, and coerce that into a string and return it. If there is an exit code that's non-zero, I can take the same output and throw it as an exception. All right? So now what are we going to do? We're going to make our dash dash version function. And it's going to have all this compile time code. So I'm going to define a printf format specifier. And I'm going to only print out 10 of the 40 hash digits, because more is ridiculous. And I'm going to call capture call at compile time. It's just by putting meta here, I make sure this works at compile time. And it returns to me an ordinary std string. Nothing const text for here, right? It's just right out of the headers uh, at compile time. And then I'm going to use sprintf to insert the first 10 uh, hex digits into, into the formatted string. And now I have one of my many new keywords, which is at string. So at is just like a, a, a new namespace for my many new keywords. So I don't have to worry about stepping on other you know, identifiers toes. This marshals data for me. I provide this a string that's known at compile time, and it yields a string literal. And then by using that string literal, I bring it into my my executable at runtime, into my assembly. So this all this code will compile down to just put s of this formatted string. All right. So uh, let's let's compile it. And then when I run it, I'm going to see that it's giving me the hash. Of the of the current repository, which is 2e405. Um, now I had to do like uh, there's a couple of things you may have questions about. Like there's an exception here. So what happens if um, git rev parse head fails? Probably because I'm not actually the the source code is not in a, a working directory that's part of a repository. What does it mean to throw an exception in the compiler? Well, if the you can either catch the exception and continue working, or like more likely you'll just let it be uncaught. In that case, you want to print out the full backtrace of the exception as if it were a compiler error, because that's ex essentially what you have, an uncaught error, right? So um, I can copy this file um, outside of the repository. Right, now I'm going to try to build it. What I see is a git error. This is the exact error that it would tell me at uh, on the command line, now formatted as a compiler error. And not just that, it tells me the uh, the exact line at which the interpreter threw the error, which is line 27, column 5. Uh, line 27, column 5, right? Here's the throw expression. And then it gives me backtrace information, saying it, it unrolled through this capture call function. So because I kind of control a, um, 
interpreter that implements the, in this case, the Itanium ABI, which is kind of the the standard um, mechanisms below the C++ um, below what the C++ standard gives you. But it's again, it's like really critical to implement it for a compiler. I have a really good um, kind of symmetry between tools that are available at runtime and, and things that are available at compile time. So I can actually, if I want to do, I could pass a, a function pointer to a function I've defined in the interpreter to code that exists as binary and have it call back. And I have all these trampoline functions and all these um, interesting like lib FFI closures. So the idea is to kind of present your host environment and your all the code in your translation unit and all the code and all the headers available to you as a single playground in which to write your program. And so by by compiling your translation unit, you end up generating a program. It's not just a, a literal translation of, of C code into into binary. It's now um, you know very dynamic. Wow. Um, so uh, we've just done some. Sure. Can I can I just say we uh, we, we don't normally do the the screen sharing. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, in, in the podcast because we we do the audio podcast. So for, for the oh the audio people, yeah. For the benefit of those who are listening uh, audio only, I'm going to include a uh, a timestamp link to the YouTube archive of this video, so you can actually go and watch the the demo. Okay, there's uh, all the source codes available in my my single repository where I jump uh, dunk uh, um, junk all my examples. But anyways, I gave these. I, I had a thing at Bloomberg yesterday, and I gave these same demo. So I hope. I hope day old demo works for you. I hope it ages well, like you know, fried chicken or pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Not like day old donuts; those are bad. But. No, no, this is this is quite interesting and um, showing showing an actual use as well as I mean, my uh, my example was kind of silly uh, reading reading a file. Why would you want to do that? But this is actually showing. Yeah, I'm getting I'm getting information from the environment and putting that into the binary so that so that the users can can give me troubleshooting reports. This is, this is very useful. Um, well, I don't think it's silly at all. So I have, I mean, I have a lot of examples where I, you know, define things in JSON because JSON is both machine readable and human readable. Yeah. And C++, C++ is really neither. So, you know, like. <laughs> that, sh- 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 that's a secret. If you want to, if you want to. <laughs> oh, I, it's not, it's, I think the secret's out. <laughs> oh, it's not a secret. Okay. <laughs> If you want to, I mean, if you're if you're working in an environment where you want to deal with like domain specialists, like scientists or something, um, it's a big ask for them to go into your source code and to like create new functions, especially if you kind of work with you know parallelization or something. There's just no way. And at the same time, you want them to contribute and to feel that they're contributing. So um, it's really useful to be able to inject the logic for functions into something like JSON, which they can emit from Python or consume from Python or any other tool or MATLAB or whatever you have, and then be able to to consume that in your translation unit. So I've got like this, I mean, there's an example here where I just used the very popular uh, Enloman JSON parser. It's like a 21,000 line header only C++11 JSON environment. And you can just pound include that, right? Um, open a file and then at compile time, loop through all the keys in the JSON and emit new functions. And how can we emit new functions? Well, I have like an add expression keyword, which is one of these new mechanisms that's part of the same extension, right? But it it allows you to translate from text to code. So because the compiler process is loaded and it's hosting your interpreter, it'll it'll do the first tokenization, it'll do the macro preprocessing, it'll do the token, second tokenization. It does all like the 12 phases of compilation that they, they have in the standard. And you end up getting something that looks like it was 
bespoke, right? It, it bears no, it has no evidence of its own construction. So all of this code, all the the uh, JSON dependencies, all that, is not, it's not, it doesn't exist in the in the final executable. So um, you know, you would never know as a user that somebody's turning the crank and 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 mechanically generating this this program. But it's the nice thing is now you can consider librarizing this code as well, right? So you have um, a library that takes in, it's, it's no longer just functions, right? You can have true logic where the interface for the library could be, um, you know, a file handle or a pointer to some place in a, in a structure or something like that. And now your library can consume data and do really non-trivial operations on it. I have, you know, examples that do automatic differentiation. So you feed it a string with um, uh, an arithmetic expression and it has like a full expression parser that it uses and then it, you know, descends down this this um, expression and evaluates all the partial derivatives, or, or creates code to evaluate all the partial derivatives. And what you end up is a compiled expression that looks like somebody you know did all the analytical derivatives by hand and just generated it for you there. But again, you have this idea of um, being able to separate code from logic. This reminds me a lot of uh, type providers in F sharp. I don't know if you've seen that at all. One of the nice things you can do with that is um, taking the, the JSON example. You can you can point the type provider, uh, so at design time, not even compile time, at some source of JSON, which could even be you know on an HTTP server somewhere, and it will it will download it, parse it, generate types for you from that data, and then you can use those types to reference um, you know later JSON data coming from the same source in a fully type safe way. We never started with the types in the first place, right? I don't know if you can do that sort of thing with with your system. Yeah. I, I would imagine, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's really a. There's, there's always a debate about is template metaprogramming like Turing complete, and what does that mean? I mean, if you can sort numbers, is that Turing complete? There's no debate like that C++, which this is all of C++ is Turing complete. You can really express <laughs> anything you want. Um, yeah, I, I, you could certainly open a database handle or, or scrape tweets and generate code from that. Um, it's Turing over complete. <laughs> It's uh, it's C plus plus, so yes. I mean, it's <laughs> there's twelve ways to do everything already. <laughs> yes, I I think that what the world really needs is a way of of converting Twitter into code. That's that's a that's a, uh, that's a billion dollar IPO. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about this technology that you've created. Um, this is. Um, uh, so you've written your own compiler, obviously, because you could, if you don't ever use the at symbols, you've got a C++ compiler, right? I I can do anything I could do with a regular C++ compiler. Uh, probably. Yeah. I mean, you can compile code, so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, there's not a lot of C++ compilers out there because this is a non-trivial activity. How long have you been working on this? Um, three years as of last week. I see. I see. Yeah. So, so, um, what else do we know about Sean other than that he has way too much time on his hands? <laughs> no, I, I don't have any time. That's not sunk <laughs> oh, into this thing. I have PTSD from building this <laughs> compiler. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I I had a job and then I I left the job as people do and I decided to try out this idea. I've been I had for a long time. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been kicking around the. I think the circle I chose the name because it kind of completes this completes the C and C, yeah. right? So now we have it's it feels like now I have a complete solution. Uh-huh. Uh, it's something that's art. So you rounded out the language. I've rounded out the language, yeah. Um, and and I felt well, 
you know, this is this is my my last time really to take a stand and, and do something crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Um, so, but but this is. Um, you told me this is based on LLVM, but this is not based on Clang. This is you've written your own compiler here. Yeah. Yeah. There's no Clang dependency. And to me, this is this is absolutely daunting. But you're actually for internal use, you're actually using um, LLVM IR. Is that right? Um, you generate the LLVM IR and use that internally. Well, that's. I mean, it's, it's the way that any any. Um, it's the way Clang would work, right? So. Oh sure, that yeah, that's yes. It's a it's an ordinary LLVM backend, sure. I mean, right. I, I I was dumping LLVM there, but I also have the linker, like a pretty simple linker, um, yeah. integrated where it'll take the object code and link it to CRT one and all those other cryptic GCC libraries. Um, so yeah, I, I use the LLVM backend, and then also, uh, you know, I've implemented Itanium ABI, so that's compatible with the lib standard C which is, I mean, it's the ABI I use for every platform except for Windows for some reason. Yeah. So um, there's a couple of aspects in addition to just the, like the language standard you have to implement to get a compiler that works on a modern system. But because you have done that, this would now, I mean, your compiler is portable because whatever backend LLVM supports, you're supporting. You've, you've written your own front end and you're using the LLVM. Uh, yeah, modulo adjustments for you know is a is a character signed or unsigned by default, and there's some you know little finicky things if you're working on uh-huh. ARM and you know yeah, but absolutely it's it's um, the front end is is very portable, and then it's just some some tweaks for the back end. Okay, you know like for instance like calling conventions like how do you there's it's pretty complicated how to do calling conventions on AMD sixty four versus ARM V eight, and those would have like some some little changes. But that's <laughs> yeah. Uh... Okay, so I, again, I'm just I'm wrapping my head around what you have achieved because um, adding adding the things that you've added to do things at compile time is really really remarkable. That's on top of doing something that is by itself remarkable. I mean, somebody came told me and said, you know, an individual by themselves wrote their own C plus plus compiler in three years. I would say, wow, uh, it's probably not got all the latest features, and yet. You do have the latest features. In fact, you have some of the features that aren't standardized yet, right? I mean, you were talking about um, you, you were talking about pattern matching, right? Yeah. So the uh, you had them last episode, uh, right. uh, Michael Park and, and David Sankel, their pattern matching proposal. So I, I I saw that and I put something pretty similar in. Um, uh, yeah. So it has both expression patterns and statement patterns, and I extended um, structured bindings to be recursive and to allow underscore wildcards and that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's front end work and it's, um, it's not too daunting because it's, it doesn't really involve too much with overload resolution and argument deduction, which are like the real devils in, in C plus plus. So, you know, features that don't require me to, to, to go down that path. I have no problem putting in <laughs> <laughs> overload resolution is, is an issue. Is it really? What a surprise. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was it. Was really grueling last. I mean, or last summer, the entire summer was was pretty much going through overload resolution problems because you have um, ranking of implicit conversion operators. Um, you have the whole, you know, substitution failure is not an error text that deals really closely with type traits, which I th- I think are kind of underdefined. Like the the definitions of them are very subtle, and when you look at the STL, there's um, enable of statements that have you know ten lines of of type traits with 
you know, these binary operations and fold expressions and whatever else. And so, so it's very Ouroboros. It's like the snake eating its own tail. So it's like really, really difficult to get something that works reliably and doesn't break on like the next, the next um, function in, in, in the thing, but it, it, it works now. Um, so I'm, I'm through all that pain. And so now it's, I can really focus more on expressing myself with these kind of like next level metaprogramming ideas. So you mentioned the episode with uh, Michael Park and David Sankel. In that episode, they, they mentioned you, or somebody mentioned you. So again, we come full circle. <laughs> mm, that's nice. Yeah. Uh, but also on that episode, in, in connection with, with your project, um, somebody said all these C++ 30 features, but right now. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, yeah, well... Um, one of the things that uh, one of the things that did intrigue intrigue us was they just said, "Hey, here's this guy's writing his own compiler and he's implementing some of the some of the cutting edge features on his own." How do you decide what you're going to implement in terms of, like you said, you just did the um, you did pattern matching because you saw them on the show. And um, by the way, um, I do want to pat ourselves in the back because we finally got a guest on who wasn't on CPP Cast first. Ah, oh, what do you know? <laughs> um, uh, so, what do you? How do you decide what um, um, what's uh, what's interesting that you want to work on? Um, most of it is is a lot of navel gazing and considering what information is available to me at compile time that's not available at runtime. Um, one thing that I've been making some effort in, but not pushing too hard yet, is to expose a version of the AST to the user. Um, in a, in, a, in a mutable form, like destructible form. So, um, I mean, this is kind of for like really circle version two, but it's consider re requesting a data structure that describes a function. And it's only going to describe that one function. If that function has an expression that calls another function, that part will just be an opaque handle. It won't be like recursively define the okay. whole translation unit. Now, you can write code that transforms that function into a new function and then re-injects it into the uh, translation unit. And so instead of really being an AST, it's more like a parse tree because the AST has a lot of weird information that is not understandable to, to the user. But but the parse tree, something that just has like, you know, this is the name of the function and these are its arguments and kind of the arguments are recursively defined. I, I think this is very valuable. So I, I did work on like a lot of domain-specific language work. So... Um, you know, I, I mentioned before I have this this project called Apex that's its own shared object. So you, uh, it, it it provides a a lexer and uh, parser for an expression grammar, and um, in a in a in a shared object. Then also the same shared object, you you build in the code to transform this parse tree into a tape, which is the what they call the data structure for doing verse mode automatic differentiation, which computes all these partial derivatives and sort of like propagates them up and so it does it in an efficient manner. Um, so all that is in a shared object library. And then there's just like a little bit of, of glue that's in a header that you include from your own translation. So you include this, you include this, uh, this apex header, and then you like do a dash M when you compile and you can, you give it a path to the libapex.so. So it loads up libapex and you call a function to, Turn your input expression into a, a partial derivative, into into a der derivative, and because that function is not defined locally, it it looks through its um, list of 
uh, loaded objects and it finds your libapex and it does a foreign function call. So you end up having a code generator that's not written in C++ text. It's only available in binary form. So I'm like really pumped about the idea of being able to ship libraries as binaries. Not a binary that you would call at runtime, but that a binary you would use at compile time. And why would you do that? Because it's pretty dang slow, for one, to have to you know, load in potentially half a million lines of, of logic just to do some operation, especially if the user just wants to do it once. And the other thing is, is for proprietary reasons. There's a lot of companies that would like to distribute source code and or they want to distribute value or functionality without having to open up all their source code. And I think the ability to be able to get a kind of a signed, secure binary that builds with, I mean, it builds a retail, or I mean, a release mode um, performance, to be able to distribute that gives people like, you know, a lot of options. And, and also it, it breaks the kind of conventional interface we've had between libraries and and code, which historically, I mean, for the last like 30 or 40 years, it's been you define a function and you call it and you provide it arguments. But here it's, you can load up some file, you can load up some, some you know, you, you have any way to, to interact with it you want the, that you want. Like we saw with the, um, the git ref parse head example, you can, you can access the full host environment. All right. Um, so that's an interesting, uh, an interesting direction, and I can see why you'd be looking at doing that. Um, can you tell me what, what kind of user base you have for Circle? Is there anybody out there that is shipping code that's, that's using this? I don't think so. Uh, no, no. Um, I've, it's, it's hard to get users, um, I mean, there's good reason that people don't want to leave the environment that they're they're used to. But also, I'm I, I'm kind of suffering because I'm just like one guy without any kind of corporate <laughs> sponsorship, trying to put out a yeah. compiler of all things, which is like you know right. a piece of core infrastructure. So it's been hard to get buy-in. I really want to get buy-in. I want to make this a thing, and um, I need I need to get guinea pigs. But it would be good if I could have internal guinea pigs. So if you you know if you've got a company, there's like internal users yeah. that you can get. You know, you get your bug testing and all that stuff, and you can get some some semblance of quality before you push it out the door. Um, I figure that'll come at some point. I just keep pushing on the core technology and trying to make it better. Right. Well, I can see this being used internally. I mean, it is. This is one of the scary things. If you're developing software um, that isn't, as you say, uh, you know, have a big corporate. Uh, symbol behind you, it could go away, and that would be kind of scary if it was a production thing. But 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 for internal tools, and I also think that internal tools are the things that might very well benefit from being able to look at environmental things at compile time and saying, I'm building this tool, and it's designed to work in our environment with these servers here and with this data configuration because I'm, I'm trying to do something internal. Um, so I can actually see that being kind of a, a useful mix. And then also because it is an internal use tool, uh, it might not be considered quite as risky to go with a trying out a new language, which is essentially what you're doing, right? You're building a new language on top of of C++. Yeah, I, I feel this is a fork in the way that C++ is a fork of C. Um, it, it, there's, I mean, it inherits a lot, but it adds a lot more stuff as well. Um, but yeah, even for the internal use case, it's, it's hard. Um, you know, businesses are like very sensitive to to these kinds of concerns i think they probably over over inflate their <laughs> the danger the risk but yeah it's i, I need someone to bite yeah. first for sure someone else that uh, wrote a compiler a c++ compiler on their own 
and successfully marketed it was uh, Walter Bright, who did the was it uh, the Zortec compiler originally, and then um, became Digital Mars. And of course, he went on to to create D, mm-hmm. which, which has some very similar constructs, uh, like uh, mixins, for example, um, for generative programming. Mm-hmm. So that there is something in that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's not there's not many people who do this though. You're right. <laughs> it's uh it's ambitious, and uh and and very exciting, very innovative, and very exciting. Uh, thank you. That's that's nice to hear. So we have a question from Matt. He said, "How do you approach the testing? In other words, you've uh, he's saying that the correctness of the overload resolution rules and that sort of thing. Um, well, um, you've taken on so much that you want to make certain that you're that it's working correctly." Right. So C++, you benefit more. I mean, because I build on C++, I benefit from having really an inexhaustible amount of test code. So, um, you know, I, I run, I always run through like all the STL headers and it's like 212,000 lines in lib standard C++ 9, which is like the current GCC distribution. So, um, that really helps find a lot of weird bugs because usually standard library code is the most aggressively written with respect to, um, kind of crazy substitution failure related features. Um, you know, it has the one where there's, you know, two of every function, there's like an explicit and a non-explicit constructor and all, and all that. So it really does push out, um, it finds a lot of bugs. And then the other thing is I try to compile myself occasionally, which, you know, um, maybe I should try to go self-hosted. I'm not sure, but that that's really productive because it's not my own, only my own code, but it's also all the LLVM headers that I build. And that, that does find a lot of, bugs as well. And then I've, I've started doing more and better regression, regression testing, I hope, because it's, it's kind of amazing how you can, you know, you can build a program that's a couple hundred thousand lines long and it compiles and then it'll break on a program that's 50 lines. And so I'm uh, just, my own examples are, are pretty good at keeping at, you know, poking it around the edges and, um, but yeah, I, I, it's, it's hard to do as a, as a single person and, and kind of, get a, a good bug-free compiler. And I, I know that corporations really struggle with getting getting bug-free compilers as well, so I'm not the only one having a problem there. Well, but it sounds like you, your approach is is to compile stuff, but how do you know the compile's doing the right thing? I mean, it's one thing to say, well, it, it broke, obviously. Well, that's a compile error. Assuming that assuming the header is properly written, um, then if you don't compile it, you've got a compiler. But what happens if you do compile it, but it turns out you're generating the wrong code? Uh, that's also a... Right, so backend... Backend bugs are possible. They're pretty uncommon, though. Um, the compiler is like really top-heavy. Uh, almost all the complexity is front-end, and that I rarely have to go into the back-end. Um, sh- there's probably some bugs in there. How could there not be? But it's it's really, I would say, like 98% of my issues are, are with front-end. And then um, it's kind of fortunate because C++ has so much internal type-checking and I mean, there's there's so many kind of dimensions in this vector of of information. There's like the no accept spec, and there's um, you know the type, and there's the value category, and then there's some like kind of other more subtle um, aspects of the AST that are always being checked. Like whenever you do some sort of operation. So um, if you if you, if you actually have a mistake in your compiler, it's kind of unlikely it'll propagate all the way through and contaminate the back end. Um, it's been I've been pretty good about it. Just like crashes sometimes, or you know, it, it gives me a, a compiler error if if something's not right and it's easy to fix. But yeah, I, there probably are some like really subtle ones. But 
you know, th- that's one of the advantages of a statically typed language is that there's a lot of backstops there for you. It's like it, it definitely finds bugs early. I see. Uh, and as you say, there's a, an, an almost inexhaustible an almost inexhaustible set of files you can point something at and say, well, let's uh, let's take a look at this open source source base and make sure we compile against that. No, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I reflexively use the most verbose um, library features. Like, oh, I must always use iOS streams to do just because it's like really hard to build. Like it uses virtual inheritance, which is an insane <laughs> feature that creates all sorts of terror for me. I mean, I spent like a month on programming like virtual tables for virtual inheritance. It's like, it's just terrible, but it's still an IO stream. So I use it all the time just to make sure that code path gets tested. So in the, in the three years that you, well, let me ask you this. Three years ago, when you started on this sojourn, mm-hmm. um, how, how did you evaluate your comfort with C++? Did you feel like, oh, I already know everything about C++. This is just a question of, of implementing it, or did you learn a lot about C++ as you went along? Uh, yeah, I definitely learned a lot. I, I definitely learned a lot. I was a good programmer before, but I was not a language snoot, and I didn't understand all aspects of it. Um, things like overload resolution and all those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, I think just reading like... through the standard. <sighs> yeah, I, I, I don't know if I know it all now. <laughs> like, uh, There's a lot I've forgotten about overload. I mean, nobody, well, maybe some people, but like, all the the ways to compare conversion operators for overload resolutions like it's you just got to read the standard and and you eventually get a hang of it especially if you implement the compiler yeah yeah <laughs> um so what did you learn about it that was truly a surprise i mean obviously overload resolution has some some complexity and a lot of detail but it's not every time i look at it it's like yeah i guess i can understand why they would do that and you know it doesn't really surprise me um const expert i think is crazy um I, I was just fixing, I, I wouldn't even call them bugs. Like I, I, there, I run into issues with constexpert and I not even say that they're bugs on, on my side. Um, it's almost infinitely permissible. You can put almost anything in a constexpert or in a core constant, um, what do they call it? core constant expression context. And um, I found one, it was an if constexpert and then the condition was a function parameter of a constexpert function. Like I'm, I'm, I put in all this, uh, enforcement of const expert correctness, and then I've, I've I've gradually been removing it all as I find like new abuses of it in the STL. That's like really surprising. I have no idea what const expert means anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, there's probably four million C plus plus programmers on the planet who also have no idea what const expert means, but most of them haven't implemented a compiler that uses it. So, <laughs> and that's why we have const eval now as well. That's right. Well, I just go where the source code leads me, you know? It's, your compiler works when it compiles code correctly, so. Yeah, so, yeah, your, your, your tests are based on the assumption that the code is correct and that's verified by the fact that it's compiled by some other compiler. So unless the other compiler is completely crazy, then it is valid code, which means you've got to figure out how to compile it and make sense out of it. Um, yeah, and also if I have bugs, it doesn't matter. They've got no users, so. <laughs> Well, there is that consolation. <laughs> um, so, uh, sp- speaking of have no users, are you uh, are you entertaining uh, offers? You said that uh, you've been working on this for quite a while. 
it's it's maybe not likely that someone, some big company wants this technology, but it's quite likely that the company might want somebody who could create this kind of technology. Are you entertaining office, offers? Um, I'm wedded to the compiler. It's, it would it'd be crazy for me to, <clears throat> to walk away from this right now. Uh-huh. So, you know. So we're looking at then you, you're serious about uh, Circle 2, uh, taking it in an interesting new direction. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm going to need funding, but I, I got to keep working on this thing. Well, I can see why. It sounds like it's very absorbing. It sounds like you've, uh, uh, you, you have, you're on to something in the sense that this is, this is valuable and, and an interesting direction. Which, as I said, I think that the standard is kind of coming at it more slowly and kind of in a more limited way. And you have just broken it open and said, well, let's just let's just go for it. Let's just let you run C++ at compile time and see see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's good. There's really no burden on the on the user to learn new things, too. Yeah, it's the same the same syntax, the same everything. You just say, well, you you mentioned a few other things at Meta. Is simply saying do this thing now, but you actually mentioned a few other things at string, which is saying mm-hmm. create this string as if it were a or evaluate this and return a string literal to return this as if it were as a string literal. Yep. And you also had at expression, which says evaluate this string as if it as if I had just typed it in as an expression right here. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, there's like 50 of those kind of introspection, uh-huh. everything uh-huh. else, sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, but that's not a lot to learn in the sense that they all make sense within the context of what you're trying to accomplish. Right. There's You don't have to read about them. It's You can pretty much intuit what they all do. Also, what's nice about on the reflection side, the declarations, there's no special syntax. You just write, you know, the decal specifier sequence, which is like just the base type and then a declarator. So it's like, you know... Um, int star p is just to create a pointer, right? And that's the declaration you would use inside of a meta control flow Mm -hmm. to declare something. And you have a check in there to make certain that whoever's writing the code is always going to be east const. I I assume that I just, I don't know. I don't even know why I asked that. I just assume that's the case, right? (laughs) It's alternating days like Tarkin. (laughs) Oh, got me. All right. Uh, Um, do you, uh, have you been following then what the, uh, what the standard is doing in the area of, um, reflection and, uh, you know, uh, David Sankel is, uh, is in charge of the reflection efforts for the standards committee. Uh, yeah. So I think I kind of I follow a little bit. So I, I never really understood like the meta class, um, proposal, which is kind of, more closely aligned or overlaps with what I've done. So I don't have like a new type, like a meta class. I just have, you know, meta code that evaluates when you mm-hmm. instantiate that class template. And um, I haven't really been guided by anything, any proposals I've seen. Um, I've, you know, I've kind of, I guess I've shut myself off and been in the coding cave for like three years. So um, this is all kind of like organically created and, and it doesn't really, it doesn't have a lot of overlap with, with the proposals from what I understand. I, 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 David told me yesterday that nobody in the, committee was even like discussing doing foreign function calls at compile time and that kind of thing. So I think a lot of this is kind of out of left field. I hadn't even thought about, yeah, this is very similar in, in what it's trying to, or what I I should, how do I say this? This is a superset of what meta functions or meta classes is trying to accomplish. 
So you should be able to do whatever is being done with meta classes this way, right? Have you just hopefully with less syntax? Yeah. Have you actually tried that? Use some of the examples that in the meta classes proposal and said, well, here's how you would do it. Yeah, I've, I have. Sure. Absolutely. I have lots of examples for, you know, generating JSON files and generating, um, I guess that would be kind of reflection as well. But yeah, there. It, I had a type erasure example, which uh, Cybrand posted. So I added like, you know, furiously added all the new um, introspection to like introspect over um, member functions so that I could do type erasure. And, um, you know, these are kind of I guess what they're planning for for 23 is to put features that implement that, and and it all works in this in this framework. I, sometimes it requires some simple extensions, but but nothing nothing too difficult. Wow. Yeah. And and with a, a minimum of of you know curly braces and and triple dots and whatever, it's like the syntax I find is is pretty direct because the real difficult part is is getting the f- is writing the control flow to get you there where you can make the the right declaration. Being able to do a meta four or something like that to to loop over what you're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and <clears throat> loop over a parameter pack, right? Why I have, you know, I have an extension dot, dot, dot square bracket to direct index of a parameter pack. And it's just super useful. You can just for loop over size of dot, dot, dot parameter pack name, right? And then that I is your index. And, you know, that's how you define tuples that way, variants, um, whatever else you want. Right. Because yeah. looping, over, looping over types is something you can't do because they're different types. And in C++, you can only have loops that loops over a particular type. And so you, by by stepping back and letting the compiler say, well, we're going to operate on, we're going to operate on essentially the AST, we're going to operate on the data. Then you can, you can say whatever the thing is, whatever that type is, because you haven't declared what the type is. I mean, you're not tied to the type. Within the loop, you're not tied to the type. Whereas in a runtime loop, you would be. Yeah. Uh, yes. So the body of a loop can right. deal with different types. Right. Right. Which which sure. we can't do at runtime, not in C++. No, you cannot. Yeah. So it's there. I mean, people would understand what it does by looking at it. But right. The semantics are different and stricter at runtime than they are at compile time. Well, I think we've burned through our time and uh, it went very quickly. It, this has been... This has been amazing, Sean. <laughs> I just thank you. It's been, it's been good. Uh, yeah, uh, it's not very often that we see a new C plus plus compiler, and then to see what you've done with this, you, you know, it was kind of like, uh, oh, I have this idea for something. I think I'll build a C plus plus compiler in order to implement it. That's pretty mind blowing. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> that's pretty phenomenal. Uh, so I'm really glad that you were on. I'm, I'm glad to, to know that you had watched our previous show. Um, and, uh, and so you know about our tradition of ending the show by wishing everyone safe quoting, which I think you, uh, uh, you are helping us get there. It's good advice. I, I'm maybe pushing the envelope in the other direction. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, uh, do you have anything you need to say before we go, Phil? There was one thing that we forgot in the, the news because it was breaking news. Oh. That uh, the, the call for speakers for the uh, for next year's ACC conference is open. Oh. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Okay. Yes. Very, very cool. All right. Um, and this year, or I should say next year, C++ and C will be after ACCU instead of before. Is that right? That's yeah, right. Because you yes. switched from February to June. So we're in June. Is it June? June, yes. Yes. Straight after the 
at the ISO meeting in Bulgaria. All right. Well, um, so please join me, both of you, in wishing us all, all our listeners and viewers, safe coding. Safe better coding. Safe coding, everyone.